0: Of our time, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25? And if you don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand and keep your hand raised uh, really high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Um, Matthew chapter 25 is where we'll be at this morning. A couple things we're going to look at this morning is in, in light of our Uh, series title, Return of the King, we're going to be talking about Jesus' kingdom. Um, We're going to be talking about today, primarily, that the kingdom is near. Next year, next week, we'll talk about um, that Jesus is the king, and the kingdom belongs to him. Week three, we'll come back and say that kingdom come, and talking about how we pray towards the kingdom to come in the midst of brokenness. And then week four, we'll wrap it all together, and talking about what we saw at the very end of that video, is heaven meeting earth, and what will it look like when Jesus comes finally to restore and renew All things. And so before we jump into the text this morning, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you that we can look back into the birth of your son Jesus in this season and remember him. But collectively in Christ, looking forward to the day in which you will come, that you would renew and that you'd restore all things, Lord, for your good and for your glory. God, we ask even today that you'd begin to stir up our affections for Christ as King, to long for his return to know you, to recalibrate our hearts in light of you during this season, that we would not be pushed and pulled by the currents of our culture in this season, Lord, But we'd be able to have hearts uh, set fully and focused upon you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I threw out the date, May 21st, 2011, how many of you guys know the significance of that date? Right? A couple of you do. But then if I showed you this picture, you're going to go, oh, yeah, right? That was the day that judgment date was supposed to happen, right? May 21st, 2011, 2000, or 20, yeah, 2011, if you guys can remember, there was these billboards all over the place, no matter where you were. If you're driving or walking down Mill Avenue, you saw this, and it was May 21st, and there was a guy by the name of Harold Camping who had predicted that this was going to be the day. People began to quit their jobs. They gave up their, their kids' um, college funds. People left their marriages, which I don't know why they did that. And they're saying, he's coming, he's coming back. And, and they were wrong, and it, it just kind of made things weird, because all of the people who never trusted in God were like, "You guys have missed that." Well then in light of that, some Christians got together and they made another billboard um, in response. And um, that was awkward, right? <laughs> and then there's a verse on there that says, "No one knows the day or the hour," Matthew 24:36. No one knows when Jesus is coming back, but he is coming back, and the Bible speaks to that. In fact, the word advent means coming or arrival. And so when we look at the season of advent, there's a few things that we're doing. One, we are connecting ourselves with Old Testament believers, and that they look forward the first advent, when the prophecies, the prophets, they begin to speak about this coming king, this Messiah, who would be the Christ, and that we celebrate with them knowing that Jesus has come. That's the, the incarnation. That is the Christmas story, that the birth of Jesus, that we celebrate that, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But we also take this moment to connect with saints. Oftentimes, and especially in recent, when it comes to Advent, what the church often does is only celebrate the birth of Christ. But historically, what Christians have done is, dating all the way back to the 3rd and 4th century, they begin to look forward the second coming, the second Advent. They begin to look and long for the day in which Christ would come, and he would set things right, and he would make things new. And so we connect with those saints. And then what we're doing in particular is saying, okay, the king is coming, and the kingdom in itself is about this king. And so how do we begin to take our hearts and recalibrate it around this particular truth? Well, first we need to understand what about the kingdom just a bit. And in fact, Jesus, as you see, his first words in the gospel of Mark is that in chapter one, the first thing Jesus says is, um, the kingdom of God is at hand, which means the kingdom of God is near. So the first thing that he finally says, after 30 years of not talking about his ministry, he has time to prepare, what should I say first? And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. But then we also have Jesus saying, well, the kingdom of God is not all the way fully here. And so we have this language that are juxtaposed, usually known as the already but not yet. The already and not yet. That is, the kingdom of God has come in the life of Christ through his death, um, his life, his resurrection, his teaching, the ascension, and also the sending of the Spirit that the kingdom of God has come and those who trust in Christ. His lordship and his reign is there, but it's not yet fully. As we saw in the video, there's still brokenness, there's still injustice, there's still sin in our own hearts, and so this is already and not yet. And the best way that we were able to uh, communicate this is we all often use the illustration of D-Day versus V-E-Day. And so on D-Day, we stormed Normandy, and we knew that the war was over. Yet, there were still battles to be done. It wasn't fully completed. So it was already D-Day, but it wasn't until V-E-Day that victory was proclaimed. And so in the same way that we know in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that Jesus did something on the cross in accomplishing salvation— Yet salvation isn't fully come. Heaven and earth are not fully reunited. And I tried to explain this to my son the other day um, using a different illustration with the way you buy a house, you own a house, but then you really don't own a house, right? Some of you guys know about that. And my son was like looking at me, and I was looking at a checkbook for whatever reason considering the fact that I haven't written a check ever um, and so he, he says, what's that dollar sign? And I said, well, the dollar sign's there for our mortgage. And then he says, what's the mortgage? Well, a mortgage is what we pay to the bank because the bank owns the house, but then we own the house. He goes, dad, what, how does the bank own the house and we own the house? I said, Noah, it's the already and the not yet. But buddy, come on, get, get with it, right? Where are you at, dude? At five years old, you should know this by now. What's going on, right? And that, that, is, that is a practical picture. If you buy a house, like you own it, you can do whatever you want to, it. it's your house, and, and yet it's not fully, fully your house until you finish, you finish paying it off. Well, when it comes to God's kingdom, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is the down payment. It's the deposit. The Spirit in itself is at work. And one day, it's a promise that God himself is going to come rescue and renew. And so if you want to understand the kingdom, you have to look at the king. Christoph Strobel says this in, in talking about the kingdom. He says, the imminent coming of the kingdom of God is a center of Jesus' message. And when he is confessed as the Messiah, the son of the living God, the coming of the kingdom of God is so closely related to his person that he is in his person seen as the coming kingdom of God. What he's saying is if you want to understand the kingdom, you look at the king and you see what he's like. You see his beauty. You see his justice. You see his care. You see his concern. You see his mercy. You see his love. You see what the kingdom of God would look like. And so those of us who trust in this king, who rest our lives in this king, that we begin to, to follow him in this world, even though there's already in the power of the spirit, but then there's not yet. And so to sum it up, you can say it's God's people and God's place under God's rule and his reign and his sovereignty. And so what that means is, and as we see through the gospels, Jesus does not establish his kingdoms all at once, but his kingdom begins to grow. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus talks about when he teaches in a few of the parables. And one says, he says, the kingdom of God is like, it's like yeast, that when it's baked, it grows. I mean, it doesn't start all the way. It isn't fully established, but it begins to grow. Or another parable, he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, very small, seemingly insignificant. But when it's planted and it's cultivated, it grows. He says that the kingdom is already and not yet. That the way that God's kingdom is working in our life is through the everyday mundane things that we do. One of my favorite sociologists, he's at the University of Virginia, um, his name is James Davidson Hunter, and here's what he talks about when it comes to the kingdom and our role in God's kingdom. As Christians acknowledge the rule of God in all aspects of their lives, their engagement with the world proclaims the shalom to come. Such work may not bring about the kingdom, but it is an embodiment of the values of the coming kingdom and is thus a foretaste of the coming kingdom. Here's what he's saying, guys. I want to make this clear. We don't bring in the kingdom. We as the church don't advance the kingdom. We're not ushering in the kingdom. The king is doing all those things. What we are in light of his grace and his love, we are a sign of what is to come. That means as we do the everyday things we do in life, the way that we do them in submission to the lordship of Christ... Then we bring all these things under um, the influence of God that we do these things in such a way that we show the world around us what it will be like, imperfectly, but what it will be like when heaven meets earth in the work and through the work of Jesus Christ. And this king is indeed coming back. And so, what I want to be able to do for us now as we look at this parable, there's a couple couple passages we'll look at, primarily Matthew 25, and then we'll look at Luke. As I want to be able to look at one, that the kingdom is near. That's what we're going to focus on this morning, that the kingdom is near, and this parable would teach that. And then be able to say, okay, what's the so what from that? And what we want to look at is what not to look for when it comes to the kingdom. What not to look for. What to do while we wait. And then how to save our lives. How do you save your life? and um, What not to look for, what to do while we wait, and how we save our lives. So, if you would look at me in, in verse, look with me in twenty verse, chapter twenty-five. It says the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, I want to get some context here, so we're not going okay. Uh, uh, there's ten virgins. There's that a house? What is this? Some weird brothel? I want to get some context that that's going on here. Okay. So, in ancient culture, Jewish culture as well as other ethnicities in that day, this is how weddings would go. Um, everybody would be invited to weddings. Weddings were a big deal, but not in the way that we make them a big deal. Um, it's long, long, long. And there was three stages. The first stage would be called the engagement. And the engagement would be the two dads would get together, sometimes with little or no involvement of, of the guy and the gal, and say, your daughter should marry my husband. And then the guy's like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's sign a contract. And they'd be like, hey, I guess, you, guess we're going to be doing life together for the rest of our life. All right? And so they're, now they're, they're basically engaged. The next stage is uh, the the betrothal. I can never say that. Someone help me. So you guys got that. And so that's the second stage. And the second stage is like a ceremony the way that we do ceremonies, where they stand there, they give vows to one another, they say, I love you, I love you, I do, I do, you my boo, you my boo. Like, they do that (laughs) in that moment, but they do not physically consummate the wedding, the marriage. There's kids in the room. You guys get me, right? And so they don't do it, right? So they get married... And what happens is now there is this waiting phase where the husband, the guy, he now goes away for a month, even up to a year. He's got to find a job. Um, He's got to find a house, get that situated, and then he can go back and consummate and have the wedding party, okay? And so then the third stage is the wedding feast, which lasts forever. There's this huge party. It usually happens at night where there's torches, where people can't see where they're going. So they bring torches to the place where they're meeting at, and there's kind of a parade through the city. Everybody's invited, and there's a party. And at the end of it, the best man or the best friend, he would take the, um, the, the groom and bring it to the bride, take the bride's hand and put it in the hand of the husband, signifying it's time for them to leave and do work. All right? And so it's been a long period. So it's the third stage in which Jesus is talking about here. Virgins can be translated bridesmaids. Because what the groom and also his party would do when it came to the wedding feast is that they would go to the house of the bridesmaid and say, it's time, let's get everybody together and let's usher, let's run, let's go to the place where we're going to be. That's the context where we pick up here in Matthew 25. So hear it in that lens, not in your weird minds, okay? The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. Here's, Here's what we have so far in this parable. We basically have two people that Jesus is highlighting, two groups of people. There are the bridesmaids. There's 10 of them. Five are wise and five are foolish. These represent people who outwardly profess God, who outwardly would show up to something that we're a part of now, a church service or some religious ceremony and say, I believe in God. They check the box, I believe in God. And and what he's saying is, but even within them, there's people of genuine belief. Those were the wise. And there's people who were kind of just going through the motions for religious activity. They maybe grew up around it. Um, it seemed a good, good to them intellectually or even emotionally, but not spiritually. And then later in the parable, we'll meet the other person. That's the bridegroom, who's a representation of Jesus. And so what happens is they all get their lamps. And what it says is five of them were wise. And the wise people, they begin to take oil for their lamps. We'll explain that in a second. And those who were foolish did not. Continuing in verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And so here's what's happening here now. So they have these lamps, and think of torches. That long poles with rags wrapped around it, and they had um, the wise took extra jar- jars of oil so that if their flame went out, they could be able to relight it again, and so they could have their light longer. I mean, Mind you, there's no street lights here. They can't see it dark. Well, the foolish said, we're not going to do that. Well, they fall asleep because they don't know when the bridegroom's going to come. You never know because he's with his boys, and they're doing their, their whole, like, bachelor party thing and stuff. All right, and then they come over, and then they, they finally say, the bridegroom is here, and so you got to imagine this. Now, like the bells are ringing, the church bells are ringing. Like they got bass, they got the GJ going. Everyone's excited. Everybody wakes up, and then the wise go, "I lost my my fire. However, I got this extra jar. Light it up. We're gonna party." The unwise are going, "Hey, hey, hey, hey! Uh, we don't have any. Can can you spare some oil? We didn't get any. We didn't prepare. Can you spare some oil?" And then here's what Jesus continues to say in the parable. It says, verse seven. Then they, all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, "Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out." But the wise answered, saying, "Since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves." Now, it's not that the wise were going. We don't really care about you. We're going to this party. Sorry, she sure got a ride, right? That's that's not what's happening here. I think there's a spiritual truth that's happening here. Hear me. You can't transfer faith. That what prepared them is that they knew what was coming. They knew that they were, they were wise. They trusted in what would happen. They knew that they didn't know when the bridegroom was coming, so they were prepared. Jesus is talking about the kingdom being near. You have to be prepared. There's a spiritual truth that's happening here. We cannot transfer faith. We cannot impart faith to another. And this is hard for us, especially as we are growing with people who are getting married and having kids. That, that when you start looking at your kids and you start thinking about your kids, so far, as, as young as our kids are at our church, we sign everything for our kids. Do your kids need to go to this school? They don't, they don't get a chance to choose. They're going here. your kids need to wear those purple socks? Yes. they'll hate me later, but I'll sign the dot here. We can sign and co-sign anything for our kids. What we cannot co-sign is our faith to them. We can't do it to our family members. We can't do it to our friends. We can't do it to our neighbors. We can influence them. We can present the gospel, we can pray like crazy that God would enter in, but we can't give it away. I I liken it to this hypothetical situation, hypothetical. If I went to my next door neighbor and I said, hey, I need to borrow your truck, I don't have a truck, but I need to go get some wood from Home Depot because I'm building something. By the way, very hypothetical, if you know me. (laughs) And so I I get my neighbor's truck and I'm driving down the street and I see one of my other friends and he says, hey, you know, I need to go to Home Depot and I need to get some wood, can I borrow your truck? I can't do that. Because this is something I've received, but I cannot give it to you. Only advice that I can give them is saying, you need to go to the person in whom I got it from in order for you to have it. And so what these wise women were saying is, hey, you guys had an opportunity. You had a chance. It was right before you. And so we have to go. We we can't impart this oil to you. How about you go to the dealers and you buy? Now, I don't want us to read too much into this. This is by no means saying that we go buy things from God and then we, we buy our way into heaven. No, there's a picture here that I believe is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. And in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, here's what Isaiah writes. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The oil that Um, The spiritual significance here is that the oil that the wise were able to, to buy was not something that they purchased, but something they received. What's communicated here is that of grace, the opportunity of the gospel. In fact, when you think about the first advent, the coming of Christ, his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, many rejected it. Many who were their eyewitnesses, they rejected it. But in that time, they were given the opportunity to repent of their rejection and believe, much like the apostle Paul. What Jesus is communicating here is there will come a day where people like you and I, though now we have an opportunity to repent and believe, he said there will come a day when that door will be shut, Well, there'll be no place for you to go and buy. And this buying now is available not for a purchase and what you can pay for, but because he freely gives. Buy Even though you don't have money, there's a picture here of grace, an undeserved gift that the king has come, and he's made it available. He's inviting everybody to the feast here. But if you are a part of the unwise, it's not about your intellect. It's not about your morality. It's not about your ability. It's about your need. It's about understanding and believing God's word that the king could come at any moment. The bridegroom could come at any moment, but he's coming. And if he's coming, that means we need to take heed to his words, that we need to be wise and prepared. And the way that we're wise is by trusting and receiving in the work of his son, Jesus. Well, the door gets shut on these women. Verse 10, it says, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Um, this picture here is the bridegroom going, Hey, we're done. We're, we're, you had your opportunity. I, I, I told you I was coming. You knew this. Like we, we, we had the, the, the marriage ceremony about a year ago. I went and got a job, I got a house. We're ready to get this thing cracking, right? And now you, are, you could have had your, your, your oil, but you, didn't, you don't have it. And then he says this, I don't know you. And that right there is reminiscent of something that Jesus already said in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is probably the scariest verses written in all of Scripture. Because what he's talking to in Matthew 7, he's talking to people like you and me. Right, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, maybe, maybe not you, but those of you in this room who have been around church, those of you who have done some religious activities, some good things, like the, your activity is good, but the hardened is what Jesus is looking at. And in Matthew 7, he says that there will be those in that day. He's talking about that last day. There'll be no, those saying, hey, can you open the door? And Jesus is gonna say, what? And they're gonna say, hey, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we give the Advent offerings? Didn't, didn't we show up to church week after week? Didn't we serve? Didn't we do all of these things? And Jesus is gonna say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Meaning externally, you were looking like you were all in. You did all the right things, but spiritually, you were bankrupt. Intellectually, you were there. Man, you could debate with the best of them. Emotionally, you were there. You were like the most hand-raising person in the group. Cognitively, you were there. You were aware of what was happening. But spiritually, you never rested in me. You always trusted in yourself. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. And this is the same picture that we have the bridegroom giving. He says, I don't know you. And then he gives the so what to the parable in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Every time Jesus teaches the parable, there's always a message. And the message is simple here. You don't know the day or the hour. And he could come at any moment. That, he, that there's a sense where um, the Bible teaches that his coming could be imminent. Now here's the question I want to ask you, and I asked myself this morning. When was the last time you thought about, meditated on Jesus returning? Like, when was the last time we woke up and thought, Lord, could you come now? That we prayed the last prayer of the Bible that's recorded in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, and that is, Come, Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that, Come, Lord Jesus. When's the last time we prayed that? Like every once in a while, right, we want Jesus to come back because we want to get out of some test or something that we, that we have, right? I remember having this experience growing up, and I didn't really know about God's kingdom, restoring the world. And I just heard, I mean, honestly, I watched the movie Left Behind. I watched A Thief in the Night, which were Christian movies that absolutely scare you into the kingdom of God. And, and I thought, well, Jesus can come back any moment. The night before our championship game for football, I remember praying, Lord, I know you can come back at any moment. Come back on Saturday because tomorrow's Friday and I really want to play in this game. I'm sure God was like, you fool, right? <laughs> but we think like that because we just want this escape mentality. But you know what? You know who wants the kingdom of God to come? People who are needy. I feel like sometimes in our own comfort, we, we become less needy. That what we want from God at the very minimum, what we want is the forgiveness of sins. God, if you could just forgive me of my sins, I'll be cool. I don't, uh, Whatever, you know. If you could come back and restore all things, sure, whatever. Just forgive me of my sins. And it shows in our life because we don't long for him to come back. But you know what? Even in our comfort, we all have something written in our hearts that eternity is there, is begging and aching for the return of a king. Every miscarriage that a woman has, there is something in that woman that longs for the return of a king. Every, every son who has never been able to emotionally connect with his father, even as an adult, he's 40, his father's 60-something, they still can't connect. There's a longing for the return of the king to make things right. That every, every time that you've been to a funeral, you've longed for a king. Every time you see brokenness, you've longed for a king. Every single time you turn on the news and you have to close your kids' eyes because you, you know that there's going to be something that's there that visually you won't want your young kids to see because you long for the return of a king. It's in us. I think if we realize that Advent in itself, as one writer says, is not about our best world, but it's actually about our worst world. It's about longing for a king to come and redeem and fill this place with his presence. Not just we would just be comfortable, but we would actually look into the eyes of the one who gave himself to us. And so in light of that king, I just want to be able to have three points as we, as we begin to look at this and enter into um, the rest of this series. The first is what not to look for in light of this kingdom. What are we not to look for? Number two is what do we do while we wait? And then number three, how do we save our life? And so if you're in Matthew, why don't you turn to the right to me to Luke chapter 17. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Luke. The gospel of Luke chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And so what not to look for? Here's what what Jesus uh, does in, in responding to some questions of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 17 beginning in verse 20. He says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered to them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they, they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus is saying, you're not going to look and see it. It's in the midst of you. He's talking about himself. I'm right here. I'm what you're longing for. We well, he continues in verse 22, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Don't go out or follow them. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying is what not to look to. Don't look to speculations and predictions. D-d-this, this this uh, May 21st, 2011, that wasn't the first time somebody said that. That wasn't even the first time that that guy said that. He said it was going to happen in 88. <laughs> and then when that day didn't happen, they said, oh, that was just a spiritual judgment. October is going to be the day. And then October came by. Listen, I'm... We cannot look to the predictions. Jesus is saying, "Don't." When someone says, "Look here" or "It's over there," don't don't go, don't fall for it. If Jesus comes back, you'll know. What you do need to know is not the prediction, but the, that he's imminent. That means he can come at any moment. And I'm with you guys, like most of you. I don't think about that. I don't. This morning I thought, man, what would my life look like if I did? Now I'm not looking at speculations, but I'm also not looking for him to come back like I should. And what Jesus is saying is, don't, don't look for the speculations, but long and know that it's imminent, that he can come back at any moment, at any moment. That doesn't mean you quit your job. In fact, since we know that God's going to restore and renew all things, we should work all the more heartily, as the Bible teaches us, as one working for the Lord. And if he comes back, he comes back, and we would be delighted to see him. And so the first thing not to look for is speculations, He's in, he, his imminency, that he could come at any moment. Number two is, um, w- what do we do while we wait? And so, if you look with me in verse uh, 26, and I'll paraphrase most of this, but the first part says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. And then if you jump down to verses 28, it says this, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed all of them, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the ho- housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And I love this last s- sentence in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. What Jesus says, if you want to know what it's going to be like, he says there, there, there are some, some warning signs of judgment. Like there's earthquakes, there's pestilence, there's warfare. He goes, but, but, but think of it this way, he says. He gives two examples from Genesis. First, he goes, remember the time of Noah? He goes, people were going about doing their life. They were marrying. They were having a good time. They were were checking Facebook. They were just doing normal things. And then Noah was building a boat and says, hey, hey, warning, flood's coming. The only way for you to escape, here's your means of grace, is to get on this boat. And they're like, ah, we'll just go about doing what we do, everyday things. And the flood came. And he says, it's going to be like that. People are just going to be doing normal things. And he goes, oh, another story. It, it's kind of like Lot. And if you don't know the story of Lot, you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, and that story is, um, and there's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, is infamous of their injustice and ugliness and, and inhospitality in, in, in and flagrant sins, sexual sins, and so forth. But what you have is God says, okay, I'm gonna provide away. Lot, get your wife, get your kids, your husbands, all of them, right? Get all of them and get out of here. Well, the, the son-in-law said, we'll stay back. But the wife came. And he said, remember Lot's wife? Is that what happened was God says, flee this way. I'm destroying the city. There's judgment. There's judgment and there's grace. There's judgment and there's grace. There's judgment going on here. Look to me. There's grace, mercy, and love. So Lot's wife is looking, looking, looking. And what does she do? She turns around and she looks back and she turns into a pillar of salt. And the question isn't that she looked. That wasn't the issue. It's where she looked to but there was something about Sodom and Gomorrah that her heart was attached to. When it comes to what should we be doing while we wait, we should all be looking at our day-to-day lives and going, what is our hearts attached to that's not God? What are we all looking to? What are we all longing for that are really good things? There were relationships in Sodom. There was probably a job in Sodom. There were son-in-laws in in Sodom. There was, that's where I raised my kids. There's a lot of things that happened there, good things, not all sinful But when those good things become ultimate things, when those good things become the greatest things, then we miss the great one. So let me tell you, um, there are many of us that are getting married and we're looking to our spouse as the ultimate reality. This marriage will be it. Good thing. We're looking to our kids and our family, establishing a really good family. A good thing. And then some of us are looking to careers. Here's the reality about careers, is that men and women both, that you can be very good at whatever industry you're getting into. And many of us are in our starter careers, and you know what? There's a lot of validation there. And people could be telling you at work, man, you're the best at this. You're great. We love it when you're here. And you go to your friends, and you go to your family, you go to your spouse, and they're like, you ain't. You know what, right? And so they're just like, I get no love at home, but I get all this love at this career. I'll just throw myself there, because that's where all the validation is. And you throw yourself in your career, whatever your hobbies may be, whatever your passions, all of these things. Not bad. Um, Then what? what... What he's saying is, you have to find out, are my hearts more attached to these things than they are to the main thing who is Jesus? Am I just going about my everyday life not even thinking about his return? Okay, I'm guilty. I'm guilty that I go about everyday things of life and work and family and friends and not one am I thinking, Lord, it's the day that you're going to come and you're going to make all these things right. So what we should be doing while we wait is the recalibration of our hearts. That is repenting. And repenting is a biblical word that communicates an about-face where you're looking to one thing or particular things and that you repent and turn. It's recalibrating of your heart to look by God's grace back to Jesus. It's not that you're in trouble. It's, it's, it's grace. It's the opportunity that the Spirit has given me an understanding to know my heart is tethered and clinging to the wrong things, and it needs to stick with God. And so what not to look for is the predictions and speculation, but to know that Christ's return is imminent. What to do while we wait is to realize not just to go about our everyday lives without recalibrating our hearts toward Jesus. And lastly, how to save our lives. How do you save your life? Just one verse here in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And I love that picture because it's the great paradox of the, of the gospel. It's a great, he says, you know what? It's not the way the world works. The system of the world and the values, it's actually different within the kingdom. In fact, if you want, here, here's the thing, if you want to try um, to lose your life, here's what you should do. Pour yourselves into your family completely and miss Jesus. Pour yourselves in your career. I mean, work hours and hours and hours to get that next job, to get that next race, and just do it. And you'll, you'll see the approval of people. You'll be into it, but you might miss Jesus. Pour yourselves into your friends. Pour yourselves into all these good things, really good, good things, but just miss out on the main thing and you'll actually lose your life. Go for it. You'll, you'll be successful at it. But then the paradox says, but if you want to gain your life, then why don't you lose it? And there's no false dichotomy here. It's not he's saying pick one, pick God or your family, pick God or your friends, pick God or providing for the people you love. No, no, it's take all of those things, your passions, your career, your creativity, all of those things and your whole life and lose it for the sake of Jesus. That when you bring all of those things under the submission of Christ, under his authority, on his reign, under what he says and how we should live according to his grace, he goes, then you'll gain life you'll gain life. If you pour yourselves out, if you give instead of taking, that's how you'll actually receive. And so the way that you save your life is actually by not trying to save your life. The way that you gain significance is by giving it away. The way that you grow is by shrinking in humility. The way that you receive is actually by giving and trusting in Jesus. Amen? The season of Advent is looking into a life in which Jesus has already started within us by his Holy Spirit and living that life in the midst of consumerism, in the midst of every single commercial and every single ad and every single pressure pressure you're going to have to live into a different culture with a different king that we recalibrate our hearts. Remember, there's one king. His name is Jesus. He's come, and he's coming again. Let's pray. God, we thank you. The door is wide open today. It was wide open for us when we first believed by the invitation of your spirit and by the communicating of the gospel of your son Jesus who laid his life down for us and was raised from the dead that we may have life. We thank you that the door is wide open for our children today, for our community today, for our classmates, for our dorm mates, for our coworkers, for our extended family. Father, we realize that the door could be closed at any moment, and so we thank you for the grace that's extended today, the grace that was extended yesterday. Father, we ask for the humility, the guidance, the leadership to be able to look for the day in which you will restore all things, in which heaven will meet earth, and you would unite. God, create in us a longing, Lord, for a true Advent for the understanding of the subversive story of a baby being born in this world whose purpose was to die for this world and shed its blood that this world may be healed and saved and redeemed. God, help us to understand and trust in your love and find great meaning in that, to live with our hands completely opened, Lord, and all the things that we value and all the things that we love that we would recalibrate them in such a way that our hearts would be geared towards you and pointed towards you. And so we thank you for the spirit of Christ. We thank you for the spirit of this season and ask that Jesus as the king would be centered and we would understand that his kingdom is near and that we live into it by the grace of God. We praise you and it's in God's great son's name. Jesus, we pray, amen.